Attorney, Fox News legal analyst, and two-time New York Times best-selling author. This is The Brief with Greg Jarrett. Experts say that China is hoarding a massive amount of food. They will soon have over half the world's wheat. What does this mean for you and me? Two words, food shortages. That's why you should stock up on the best-selling Four Patriots Survival Food. Create your own stockpile by using the code GREG, G-R-E-G-G. Four Patriots Survival Food is hand-packed in the USA with different delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, and their five-star reviews on the website rave about the flavor and taste. Just go to fourpatriots.com and use the code G-R-E-G-G to get 10% off your first purchase of Four Patriots Survival Food. That's fourpatriots.com. Use the code GREG, G-R-E-G-G. Hello, everybody. I'm Greg Jarrett. Welcome to my third town hall about my new book, The Trial of the Century. It's in bookstores nationwide. You can order it online, barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, the usual places. And, you know, I'm so delighted and grateful that joining me for a discussion about the book to dig a bit deeper into a couple of the chapters is former Governor Mike Huckabee who has been a dear friend throughout the years. I got to know him well when we we had offices next to each other at Fox News, uh, where he was a contributor, had his own show. Governor, great to see you. And thanks so much for taking the time, not just to read my new book, The Trial of the Century, but uh, to spend a little time talking about it. Thanks so much. Well, Greg, it's a pleasure. You know, I have some great memories of those days next door to you on the 18th floor. And of course, uh, I would often be over there rehearsing music that I would be playing with some guest artist on the show. And of course, Greg had to come over and bang on the wall and say, could you hold that down, please? I'm trying to think over here. Actually, he was a great neighbor and uh, is remaining and always will be a dear friend and somebody I have great respect for, for his uh, legal analysis. And when uh, Greg, you're on uh, Fox and uh, particularly on Sean Hannity's show, and he's bringing you in to talk about legal issues. Uh, you know, I'm all ears because I feel like that I'm going to learn something about the legal system. And I think it's what makes this book remarkable. You're talking about uh, one of the most famous and truly, uh, I would say, landmark trials in American uh, jurisprudence. And uh, therefore, it's going to be a lot of fun chatting with you about it. And I appreciate the opportunity to get to be on board with you. You know, what struck me about this case, and I learned about it as a teenager, and, and Clarence Darrow became my hero, is that this was a case in which uh, the First Amendment, free speech, was in jeopardy. In America, it was at the precipice here. They, they were beginning to engage in wholesale censorship. The government was. And they were uh, undertaking a full frontal assault on free speech, academic autonomy, intellectual empowerment. As I write in the book, they were going after and getting rid of the indispensable proposition that no one should be told how to think. 
And I shudder to reflect on what America might be today were it not for the courage of a young school teacher by the name of John Scopes who was put on trial for teaching evolution in a public school. And the courage of his intrepid defense attorney, again, my idol, Clarence Darrow, standing up against popular opinion and standing up against government abuse, which, of course, as you know, we see so much of still today, almost 100 years later. You know, when I was reading uh, within your book, one of the things that struck me was that it was 100 years ago, basically, when the trial of the century took place. A hundred years later, we're dealing with very much of the same kind of things. It's just that a hundred years ago, it was that the uh, political right was primarily involved in trying to squelch free thinking and free thought and free speech. Today, it seems to be that now the left has decided that they want to squelch free thought, free speech. And the result is still the same. And if something doesn't happen Right. then our country could be facing what it would have faced had this whole trial uh, turned out differently. You know, and regardless of what one thinks about the Bible or evolution, that's not the point. The point is people ought to be free to have views, and those views ought to be able to be expressed in, in a free society. And when they cannot be expressed because people squelch them, everyone loses. And it's uh, I, I think I don't know if you intended it to be this way. But the book is probably more timely than it's been in the past 100 years. If you'd have written this 30 years ago, it would have been an interesting read. But people would say, yeah, but that'll never happen again. <laughs> You're writing it at the time when it is happening. It's happening right now. And I think the, the historical context of what happened in the Scopes trial and uh, particularly with the brilliant legal strategy of Clarence Darrell going into this small town uh, where Everything was stacked against him, including the judge. Yeah. And boy, does that ever sound familiar. Um, it really does. And in fact, I, I talk a great deal, especially towards the end of the book. The epilogue brings it you know, full, full circle to today, that it's as relevant now, if not more than it was you know, 100 years ago, because we're seeing the same sort of free speech abuse and government overreach. Uh, whether it's, you know, partisan censorship in political discourse, polarizing uh, disinformation campaigns, classroom indoctrination, this punitive cancel culture whereby conformity of thought, Governor, now supplants robust debate. And this is the antithesis of what a free society is supposed to be. And, you know, it was happening uh, back in 1925 in America. And, you know, Darrow stood up for it and, and changed public opinion. And, and it spelled the beginning of the end for banning books and censorship and the silencing of opposition and, you know, free thinking. And now all of a sudden, you know, it, it's like the old saying, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. We're, we're repeating it now. And, you know, I think Americans need to be horrified at it. Let me ask you, when you started this book, did you even think about the context of our current culture? Was that a big part of the motivation for the timing of the book and the research for it? Well, I, 
I wanted to write it because it was the seminal case on free speech in America. And as I say, it was a turning point in America. Could have gone either way. Uh, but the more I wrote the book, Governor, to answer your question, the more I realized the parallels between what was at stake back then and what is at stake today. And and I also realized that anybody under the age of 50 has never heard of the Scopes Monkey Trial. They've, you know, very few people know anything about Clarence Darrow, sort of a, a forgotten heroic figure. And, uh, you know, when I sat down with several of the publishers uh, to talk about doing the book, like all of them were like, how come I've never heard of this? This is incredible. I've never heard of this case. And that cemented my determination to write a book about it, to tell people about something, not just that they want to know about, but what they need to know about. Why did Clarence Darrow take this case? Because he was obviously going where angels fear to tread. Dayton, Tennessee was not exactly uh, (laughs) a friendly environment for a Chicago lawyer. So what was it that motivated him? You know, Darrow was such a fascinating figure, and uh, he did not hesitate to walk into the lion's den, wherever it may be. One of the things I so admired about him when I, I read a biography, I was a young teenager, is that this was a man who cared about charity and decency and mercy the oppressed, uh, the needy, the despised. They were his treasured clients. He championed their causes. Uh, And without him, they scarcely stood a chance against a government with unlimited resources and immense power. And and Darrow never hesitated. He became widely known as the attorney for the damned. And, you know, so when he saw what was happening, Uh, across the nation uh, in the 1920s as uh, fundamentalist leaders began convincing states to pass laws banning books on science, particularly evolution. Tennessee took it a step further and said, we're going to make it a crime Hmm. for a school teacher to teach evolution that is in the state-approved textbook. There's a subchapter on it. So in other words, you know, a, a teacher could get uh, sent to jail for doing his job. It was okay for students to read about Darwin's cornerstone theory in the book, but my goodness, the teacher was not allowed to teach from the book. And and Darrow was incensed over this. And, you know, he had once been dear friends with the great fundamentalist leader, William Jennings Bryan, three-time Democratic presidential nominee. But, you know, when Bryant began to force his own ideology and opinions on everybody by passing these laws and then joined the prosecution team to convict Scopes, Darrell became so angry that he volunteered to defend this young school teacher, John T. Scopes, 25 years old, for free. And that Mm -hmm. meant stepping into the lion's den in the tiny town of Dayton, Tennessee, where Bryant was revered and Darrow was reviled. 
And I can't imagine that there was any lawyer within 200 miles of Dayton, Tennessee, that would have taken this case. It would have likely been the end of their legal career. And yet one of the things that I think really is a key point that comes out of the book, and frankly, I also admire this in uh, someone you often appear with, Alan Dershowitz. It's not about whether you agree with the client. It's whether or not in our system of justice, does everyone deserve legal representation? And the answer has to be an emphatic yes. So John Scopes deserved legal representation because this is America and everybody gets that. Doesn't matter what you've done, even if you're as guilty with eight camera angles catching you in the act of a crime, you still have uh, a presumption of innocence. You have the right of due process. And you still have to be convicted beyond a reasonable doubt by a jury of your peers. I mean, those are fundamental things. I I have to believe, knowing you as I do, that one of your attractions to Clarence Darrell and his taking this case was that he affirmed that simple yet profound constitutional premise of American justice, unlike any justice system in the entire world. And, you know, it's in the Constitution, for goodness sakes. And it's one of the first things you learn uh, in in law school, that everybody's entitled uh, to a, a defense. And in fact, uh, you know, in the 1960s, Gideon versus Wainwright, if you couldn't afford an attorney, one would be appointed for you. So that was an expanded right. But back in 1925, uh, you know, Scopes couldn't afford Clarence Darrow. Uh, he was one of the most expensive attorneys in America. So Darrow just said, I'm going to do it for free. It's mm-hmm. why at one point in time in, in Darrow's career, he was so broke, he had to sell his first, his prized first edition books from his library. But Darrow didn't care so much about the money. He cared about values and principles. And, and they animated my own as I read more and more about Clarence Darrow. And of course, you know, you're also entitled in the Constitution to a, f- a fair trial, a jury of your peers. Well, that wasn't going to happen in Dayton, Tennessee. Uh, you know, the judge was an ordained minister who on opening day read from the book of Genesis. Uh, <laughs> and, and the, you know, the jury was composed of devout, you know, church followers. Three of them had read no other book except for the Bible. And none of them except one had heard anything about evolution. None of them understood it. And so, you know, this was an uphill battle for for Darrow. He knew it. He didn't care. He was going to do the best he could. You do something in the book, and and frankly, I was not aware of this, that one of the key strategies that Clarence Darrow employed was to uh, do something I thought extraordinarily bold. He put William Jennings Bryan on the stand as part of the defense for scopes. Yeah. So go into that a little bit, because I think it's one of the most fascinating uh, legal strategies. I've never heard of someone putting basically the uh, the plaintiff, if you will, or the accuser on the stand for the accused. It was the most remarkable uh, scene in American history. And in fact, the New York Times described this titanic clash between Darrow and Bryan on the witness stand as the most amazing court scene in Anglo-Saxon history. And it truly was. 
You know, the judge foreclosed Daryl from putting on a defense of his own choosing. He had all of these esteemed uh, theologians and these acclaimed scientists who were prepared to tell the jury that, look, evolution and creationism um, do not conflict with one another. Uh, they are not inconsistent. Uh, they, they can live in harmony. And in fact, all major religions now endorse that point of view. The Pope has said that uh, evolution presupposes creationism, that, that God had a hand in all of this. And that was Darrow's argument all along, but the judge wouldn't let him do it. The, the judge was determined to play judge, prosecutor, and jury and convict scopes. And so none of these scientists and theologians were allowed to testify. Uh, in a moment of desperation, Darrow did something extraordinary and brilliant. He counted on Brian's ego that Brian would want to show off. So on the last day of the trial, Darrow surprisingly calls Brian to the witness stand, the prosecutor, as an expert on the Bible. And the judge said, well, you can't do that. <laughs> and sure enough, Brian took the bait. He stood up and he said, Your Honor, I have nothing to fear. <laughs> I'm more than happy to tell the world the truth of the Bible. And of course, Darrow's strategy was to try to make Brian look foolish for believing that everything in the Bible should be taken literally. And of course, we, we know that the Bible, the most wonderful book ever written, is filled with parables and allegories that teach us important moral lessons. They're spiritual. They're not necessarily literal history, but Brian believed otherwise. So the judge, so concerned that the courtroom packed with spectators might collapse, <laughs> he orders the trial to move outdoors on a platform left over from Independence Day festivities, and there are bleachers and everything. I show this wonderful photograph in the book. There are 38 uh, pictures in the book of the trial where thousands of people are out on the front lawn and in the bleachers watching Daryl cross-examine Brian on an elevated platform. And they had moved the radio microphones outdoors so that the nation could listen. This was the first trial pre-television age to be broadcast live on national radio to a riveted audience. And so, you know, the world stopped to listen to this eviscerating cross-examination where Daryl utterly destroys Brian. And, you know, I, I tell the moment at the end of the book, at the end, the crowd that hated Daryl surrounded him and cheered him on. And he looked back on the witness stand and there's this solitary, lonely figure, not a friend in the world, William Jennings Bryan. And he's a broken man. And just a few days later, still in Dayton, Tennessee, you know, Brian laid down for a nap and he died, a broken mm -hmm. man. Wow. I think it's uh, an extraordinary conclusion to the overall story. Tell us, though, what what was it that Darrow did in that cross-examination of Brian that just so essentially unraveled him? Because clearly it did. And I think you point out that maybe a mistake, at least from Brian's point was 
taking him outside where he sweated profusely. He looked kind of like Richard Nixon in the uh, Nixon-Kennedy debate, which does not help the appearance of a person who's trying to be taken uh, as telling the truth. Right. So um, one of the interesting things is that I went to the courthouse a couple of years ago in Dayton, Tennessee, closed at the time. But I met the archivist there, had a key, took me down to the basement archives, <laughs> dusty basement archives. Mm-hmm. And there uh, he gave me a copy of the original trial transcript. Uh, and he also showed me the handwritten notes of the judge's court reporter in this beautiful longhand in this massive, massive book. So I studied that. And th- that's uh, what I based the book on. And I uh, quote uh, extensively this incredible cross-examination in which, you know, Darrow takes certain uh, portions of Genesis in the Bible, uh, you know, uh, Jonah and the whale, Joshua making the sun stand still, uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the talking serpent and so forth. And he begins to sort of break it down and tries to demonstrate uh, to Brian uh, quite successfully that, you know, not all of this is literal. And, you know, the Bible, uh, tens of millions of Bibles printed all over the world, you know, had uh, first man 6,000 years uh, before. And of course, we know from genetics, genomics, uh, paleontology, anthropology, all sorts of natural history that uh, civilization had been on earth many thousands of years, tens of thousands of years before that. And Bryant had no good answers for it. I mean, here was this crowd of William Jennings Bryant supporters who revered the man um, who expected these brilliant answers. And, you know, Bryant began to fumble and stumble and mumble. And, uh, you know, at one point in time, there's this exchange. Well, what do you think about this? And, and, Brian, unfortunately, said, I don't think about things I don't think about. And, you know, the, the crowd started to laugh at him. And the more the crowd's derisive laughter was heard by Brian, the more he panicked and the worse it came, came for him. Um, and in the end, um, yes, Daryl lost the trial, but he won the larger and more important uh, battle. And that was the court of public opinion. You know, people read about it in all the major newspapers. They listened to it on radio. They watched the newsreel films of the trial in movie houses. And it shifted public opinion dramatically. And so ended the government's intrusion of banning books and criminalizing science. Uh, Again, a, a pivotal moment in American history. There was a, and I know we're going to run out of time here, but I, I want to get to a part of Clarence Darrow's life because you deal with it in the book Trial of the Century. And again, it's a piece of history I was not aware of. We think of Clarence Darrow as a swashbuckling, fearless attorney, but he also was a man who once actually contemplated taking his own life. Yeah. So th- there was obviously conflict within himself. Tell us about what was that about? And how did he come to peace with himself to continue his legal career? Well, it's one of the things that humanized Darrow to me. Um, You know, he was just like me. 
he 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 is afflicted with the same human frailties uh that we all have don't you know and um there you know he suffered bouts of defeat and depression uh, just like many of us do from time to time but he overcame them through perseverance and determination and there's an important lesson in all that governor so there is Darrow. it was 1912 uh, you know, this is a good 13 years before the Scopes monkey trial, and he was representing the unions back then. Uh, and two union leaders, uh, the McNamara brothers, were put on trial for a bombing of the L.A. Times uh, building in Los Angeles uh, during riots there, and which 20 people died in a fire. And Darrow represented the McNamara brothers, and he was accused and criminally charged, Darrow. Hmm with bribing one of the jurors. And I open this chapter by, you know, with Darrow knocking on the door of a, a female journalist with whom he had once had a romantic relationship. It was a rainy, dark night, Darrow in an overcoat, drenching wet, bottle of whiskey in one pocket and a revolver loaded in the other. And Mary Field opens the door and Darrow looks at her and says, I'm going to kill myself. And he meant it. She knew it. She brought him inside. And over the next several hours, sitting at the kitchen table, she talks him out of it. And she says, Darrow, and she always called him Darrow. He hated the, the name Clarence. Darrow, you've got to fight to restore your good name and reputation. Um, and by morning, as he's leaving, you know, the thoughts of suicide have gone away and he summoned the courage to defend himself. You know, historians and scholars have long debated, did he really do it? Did he uh, bribe a juror um, because the government was using these unconscionable uh, thuggish tactics and he was just trying to even things out? Some say yes, some say no. My view is that he probably did it. It was a horrible mistake. He regretted it for the rest of his life. It all, you know, it nearly ended his life, literally. Um, and we all make mistakes. And, uh, you know, Darrow, uh, there were two trials. The first one, not guilty. The second one, uh, a related crime, mistrial. And that ended Darrow representing unions. And after that, he represented everyday people and became famously the attorney for the damned. And, you know, mm -hmm. at the front of the book in Irving Stone's great biography, the epigraph reads, I may hate the sin, but never the sinner. Mm. And that speaks volumes about Clarence Darrow and his character. Uh, boy, what a, what a great reminder that that's really the way all of us should live. Yeah. You know, we can hate the things that destroy us, but don't hate the people that are being destroyed yeah. because those are our brothers, our sisters. We are like them, all made of clay. And we all have uh, the frailties, the foibles of life. And uh, but by the grace of God, there go I. Yeah. Uh, Greg, a great way to conclude our conversation. Maybe if you hope a reader has a takeaway from the book Trial of the Century, what is that uh, takeaway that you hope they close the book and say, this was what really will stick with me? 
that you can believe in God and be a faithful person uh, and and still believe in learning and science. You know, as Darrow argued in front of the biased jurors uh, and, and the judge, um, people should be allowed to exercise religion freely, just as they should be permitted to learn freely, right? We're all thinking, intelligent human beings. We, we should be allowed to form our own judgments. Students in public schools should be taught everything and, and form their own judgments. They shouldn't be foreclosed from learning. And, you know, I love the Bible. It's, it's the most important book in my judgment, but it doesn't teach you anything about, you know, mathematics and, and science uh, and so many important pursuits. That's where, that's where other books come in. And, you know, we can't allow the Bible to be the yardstick for all human thought and all learning. And I hope people will consider that. I considered it as I was writing the book. And, you know, once again, um, America, you know, and our democracy in this constitutional republic is a fragile thing. Uh, you know, as Reagan said, we're only a generation away from losing it all. And uh, we almost lost it all uh, in 1925 in the Scopes Monkey Trial. And, you know, we're, we're always sort of staring into the abyss of doing it all over again, aren't we, Governor? And I think that's it's important to be reminded of that. I think that's uh, a great assessment. You know, Greg, I'm a person of faith, but I also believe that if love of God is forced, it's not love. Right. The whole point of faith is that it's something I choose to embrace. And if someone chooses not to embrace it, then I respect that that's how the world is supposed to work. God doesn't want me to love him because he doesn't give me the choice. He wants me to love him because having discovered whatever I discover, it becomes my choice. Right. That's how relationships work, whether it's with a wife or a friend or, or with God. If it's not a relationship of mutual decision, it's not much of a relationship. And I think that's one of the great uh, lessons that you have reminded us in this book, The Trial of the Century. Well, it's you, been a pleasure getting to visit with you. It really has. You have put it quite elegantly. I, I, <laughs> I wish I had your words in my book, but the name of the book is The Trial of the Century. It's available now in bookstores nationwide, and you can order it online. And you know, it's been one of the more enriching pursuits in my life to, to go through this book and learn more about it. And I think it's something that uh, people will get a lot out of. And, and Governor uh, Mike Huckabee, I, I always have valued your friendship and I appreciate all you've done for me. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you, Greg. All the best. You deserve uh, all the good things. And, and again, your legal mind is one of the best in the country. And Every time I hear you, I learn something, and I hope I'll continue to enjoy the uh, legal analysis from Greg Jarrett. Take care, Governor. Here's the book, The Trial of the Century. Pick up a copy now. I'm Greg Jarrett, along with Governor Mike Huckabee. Thanks for joining us today.